and it's my privilege to be able to open up the scripture with you this morning. So I'd like to invite you to take out a Bible if you have one and uh, open it up to Luke chapter 14. If you don't have a Bible or one on your phone or on your electronic device, there should be Bibles in the chairs that you can grab and look at if you want to grab one of those. Luke is in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, the third gospel, chapter 14, Luke 14. We're wrapping up this series on the Slow Church today in which we've been looking at different parables of the kingdom and understanding how that might apply to us today. What does it look like if we would live this kingdom out here in our midst? And I don't know if you've noticed this, but a number of our parables have come from exactly the same context. It's the context of Jesus eating with people. He's sitting around having a meal, and then these things kind of come up in the middle of that. And that's the case in our story again today. So if you look at me with Luke chapter 14... We're going to read about what happens here. Luke 14, starting with verse 1. One Sabbath, when Jesus went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee, he was being carefully watched. There in front of him was a man suffering from abnormal swelling of his body. And Jesus asked the Pharisees and the experts in the law, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. So, taking hold of the man, he healed him and sent him on his way. Then Jesus asked them, If one of you has a child or an ox that falls into a well on the Sabbath, will you not immediately pull it out? And they had nothing to say. When he noticed how the guests picked their places of honor at the table, he told them this parable. When someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor, for a person of more distinguished than you may have been invited. If so, the host who invited both of you will come and say to you, Give this person your seat. Then, humiliated, you will have to take the least important place. But when you are invited, take the lowest place so that when your host comes, he will say to you, Friend, move up to a better place. Then you will be honored in the presence of all the guests. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Then Jesus said to his host, When you give a luncheon or a dinner... Do not invite your friends, your brothers or sisters, your relatives or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back, and so you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be paid at the resurrection of the righteous. When one of these at the table heard him say this, he said to Jesus, Blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. Jesus replied, A certain man was preparing a great banquet, and he invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I've just bought a field. I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I've just bought five yoke of oxen, and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still another said, I just got married. I can't come. The servant came back and reported this to the master. Then the owner of the house became angry, and he ordered his servant, Go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring the poor, the crippled, the blind, the lame. Sir, the servant said, What you ordered has been done, but there is still room. Then the master told his servant, Go out to the roads and country lanes. Compel them to come in so that my house may be full. 
I tell you, not one of those who were invited will get a taste of my banquet. This is God's word, and it's true, and we can rely on it. There is one burning question in college athletics right now. What's that question? Who's in? Who's in? Yeah. I'm sorry to have to bring this up, but uh, doesn't 11 and 0 get you in, don't you think? This question has been stirring up millions of words every week on blogs and tweets and sports shows and newspapers and the analysts and the fans and the coaches and the players. Everybody's speculating about who is the team that is qualified to get into the playoff. The question is about, do they deserve it? Are they worthy of it? This is the question about... And I kind of got a kick out of, I actually went to the official college playoff website, and they had this little kind of boasting right on their homepage. The playoff has not just upped the game for the players. It's upped the game for fans, coaches, bands, cheerleaders, and even mascots are taking it to the next level. I'm not sure exactly how a mascot takes it to the next level, but we are definitely curious about this question. Anybody who has anything to do with college sports, aren't we? Who's in? And of course, this isn't just limited to football. We have this kind of mentality all over the place because there's the Ryder Cup, the Sprint Cup, the World Cup, the Voice, presidential debates. I mean, we have all these forums where we like want to figure out who's qualified to be in and who's not qualified to be in, right? In many areas of life, we kind of see life as a contest between the people who are can do it, the people who can produce, the people who can achieve, and the people who cannot produce or cannot achieve. So we have winners and losers, and winners get in, right? And losers are left out. Who's in? So I thought I would try to apply this question to the slow church. We've been spending a number of weeks looking at what does it mean for us to cultivate community in the patient way of Jesus? What does it look like if we were going to create a community of people who were like exemplifying the kingdom of God here on earth? What would that look like? So who's in the slow church and who's out? And to try to answer this question, we're going to look at Luke chapter 14, which is a very typical slow church activity. Jesus is sitting around a table eating with people. And this is how the story starts. One Sabbath, when Jesus went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee, he was being carefully watched. There in front of him was a man suffering from abnormal swelling of his body. I think some translations call it dropsy. It's, the man's clearly sick. It's obviously that he's in need. He's in distress. And Jesus sees this man, and so he asks the experts in the law and the Pharisees who are sitting around the table, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? And they remain silent. So Jesus takes hold of the man and heals him and sent him on his way. A couple things to note about this story. Pharisees are in. Experts in the law are in. Wealthy individuals who are able to host a meal at their home, they're in. Religious leaders are in. Jesus is actually in at the beginning of this story. 
these people sitting at the table of Jesus, this would not have been uncommon, like with a traveling rabbi would come to town and those who are the most prominent, those who are most in as part of that community would invite the rabbi to their home and then they would question him on his points of view to try to figure out where he was standing on that. And kind of a little examination. So rabbis are in. So Jesus is in. Sick people are out. And this is uh, figuratively and literally, actually. So the way these little gatherings would go usually in a village like this is the prominent leaders would gather together for a meal. They would invite their rabbi to come in and hear. And this would create a little stir in the community. So it's like kind of a community happening. So people would find out there's a rabbi in town. Let's go check it out. Everybody who was in would be invited around the table. Those who were out would literally be outside the house. And they'd maybe be gathered in little groups and maybe with their ears turned a little bit to try to hear. Can we, we're curious also about what this rabbi might want to teach. So those who are poor, those who are crippled, who are lame, who are sick, they're out, outside the house. But this man somehow gets in to the house. And so now he is presented there and he's standing before Jesus and this group of leaders. And Jesus asks them the question, is it okay for me to heal this man on the Sabbath? And they don't know what to say. First, because they're like wondering, how did this guy get in here? And second, because they're thinking, well, of course it's not okay to heal on the Sabbath. There's no way you should be allowed to do this. But uh, Jesus heals him anyway and sends him on his way. Now is Jesus in or out? He's working his way out pretty quick because he's just violated one of their big rules. You're not supposed to heal on the Sabbath. And since he's probably on his way out already anyway, he starts to push their buttons a little bit more by elaborating on exactly what the kingdom of God looks like. So he starts this little discussion with them about what it is. And I can just imagine that as this discussion about the kingdom and uh, your place of honor and who gets to sit at which table and all this is part of that discussion, you can just imagine the level of awkwardness growing as the meal continues, and Jesus keeps saying these uncomfortable things that they don't want to hear. So I imagine that some guy, in an effort to try to like break the awkwardness, finally blurts out, Blessed is everyone who will sit at the table in the kingdom. And he's using this as kind of a little diversion tactic because he's trying to bring this back to kind of what everybody around the table already believed. They all thought that the kingdom was this time when God would consummate all that he wanted to accomplish. It's all completed. And those who are righteous are going to be seated, will be seated at a table with Jesus in his kingdom. This is how they pictured the kingdom coming. Those who qualify will be in at this table. And the man who said it believes that everybody sitting around this table currently qualifies. They're all going to be in. So he's just trying to bring a little perspective back into this. Well, as you can imagine, Jesus doesn't take this very well. Because in reality, what they've done is they've actually twisted what the Scriptures teach about this final feast in the kingdom. They've taken a few passages and they've kind of reworked them a little bit so that they've ruled out certain people as being eligible from this kingdom feast. Um, there's passages that talk about, the, the passage I'm thinking about mostly is Leviticus 22. It talks about uh, who's ceremonial clean, ceremonially clean and unclean. And it's really a passage about the priests and those who get to work in the temple. And there's some real strict requirements about how can you be qualified to be one who goes into the temple to serve. 
And they kind of twisted these and they expanded the context so they started to believe these were about everybody who would be invited to that kingdom feast has to follow these really strict rules. So they started to rule people out. Those who were ceremonially unclean, they're ruled out. Those who had impurities, they're ruled out. Those who were lame or crippled or blind, they're ruled out. Those who were poor or marginalized, they're ruled out. Those who were less than perfect, those who were less pious, those who were less righteous, those are all ruled out. They actually had a name for them. You know what the name for this group is? Outcasts. Are they in or are they out? They're outcasts. Now, this is kind of curious. If you go back to the main passage that is used for these people to establish the coming feast and its kingdom, which is Isaiah chapter 25. In this passage, it's a beautiful picture of what that kingdom feast is going to look like. And I'm going to read it to you. And after I read it, I want you to tell me who's in and who's out according to this passage. Okay, this is Luke chapter 25, starting with verse 6. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all people. A banquet of aged wine, the best of meats, the finest of wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from the whole earth. The Lord has spoken. According to Isaiah 25, who's in and who's out? Everybody's in. Doesn't it sound like that? In fact, it seems to me like those people who are crippled, who are poor, who are lame, who are needy, who are sick, they seem to be the ones who qualify most to have their tears wiped away, don't they? Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. Those sitting around the table expect that Jesus is going to affirm their narrow view of who's in and who's out. They're expecting Jesus to say, oh, you, all you sitting around the table here, don't worry. I rocked the boat a little bit, but you're all in. Don't worry, those people, they're all out. But Jesus doesn't say that. Instead, he tells this interesting story about a guy throwing a feast who sent out invitations And uh, you have to understand maybe a little bit about the culture in this story. Um, There's always two invitations. Kind of the first one is more like the RSVP so I can get a number, okay? So the guy sends out this invitation saying, I'm having this great feast, I'm having this great banquet. Let me know if you're coming so that I can have the proper amount of stuff. I need enough meat, I need enough wine, I need enough bread, I need enough food for this banquet. So I send out this massive invitation saying, come to my banquet. And and the implied... uh, The implication behind the story is everybody accepts. They all say, yes, we're coming to your banquet. And so he he gets all of his supplies together. He prepares for the banquet. Everything's ready. And then finally, the second invitation comes. They send out a little notice that says, you can come now. Everything's ready. I've got all the preparations based on the RSVP that you sent me. And then those who said yes start to make excuses. Now, this would have been a scandal. This would have been an insult to the host. I first said, yeah, I'll be there, you know, fix a steak for me. And then I say, no, I'm not coming. And this, the, 
Excuses are notoriously flimsy. You can do a lot of study. There's a lot of words spilt on how flimsy these excuses are. But you know, who buys a piece of land without looking at it? It's like, you know, I'm going to go buy this house. Well, I bought the house, but I have never seen it. So now I've got to go check it out. And who buys oxen to work in your field without, like, test driving? You've got to make sure they work, like they pull together. They're good teams. You don't buy these sight unseen. This is crazy. And the one about the wedding, excuse me, I just got married. Like, he didn't know that when the first, the first invitation came out. These are very flimsy excuses. And they would have been kind of shameful, even shocking in this particular context. The truth of the matter is, these people say, I don't want to go to your banquet. That's what they're saying. I don't want to come. And so the host reacts quickly and with determination and resolve, and he sends the servants out, and he says, listen, we are going to have a party. So go to the city and to the back alleys, to the side roads, quickly, and bring me the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. And the servant says, we've done that already, and there's still room for more. And so he sends them farther out. Go out now to the roads and the, county, and the country lanes and compel them to come in because his goal for the party is that my house would be full. I tell you, not one of those who were invited will get a taste of my banquet. Now who's in? And this invitation story would not be lost on those who are sitting around the table. Those sitting around the table are the ones who said, I don't want to go to your banquet. And it got me wondering how many people reject Jesus' invitation because they don't really like the kind of party he's throwing. They're not sure they want to mix with the kind of people Jesus invited to the party. People want God's kingdom to come, but they think it's going to be for people just like me. That's not going to be for everybody else. I know that I find myself falling into that frame of mind all too often. People like me are qualified. Everybody else I'm not so sure about. Think about it for just a moment. Who do you think we will see at the feast in the last day? Who will be part of the kingdom? Is it going to be a, a nice little lunch? Just a few hand-selected individuals, those who measure up? Me and my best friends? Or is it going to be maybe a moderately-sized dinner? Yeah, we'll make some room for a few people, but you know, we'll make sure that they qualify. We'll have some vetting process and make sure that they can get in. We'll let in a few extra people, but we don't want to be overwhelmed with too many people who are not like me? Or will this be a grand banquet including all people? People too numerous to count. Including people beyond our wildest expectations. People I would never expect to be there. This question starts to wear on me because I wonder about my own tendency to judge who's qualified and who's in and who's out. Because it seems to me like I always got some kind of group that I think's out, just to be honest with you. There's always somebody who I think, yeah, I don't know. Who are my outcasts? Who are your outcasts? I wonder if people from the LGBT community are going to be at the great banquet. It's a question I have. I don't know. 
I wonder. Are people who commit violent crimes, cop killers, are they going to be there? People who abuse women and children, I think there's a special punishment they deserve. Are they going to be in the kingdom? Terrorists? Syrian refugees? Nebraska fans? Lawyers, liberal Democrats, I don't know. We all have categories of people we think maybe they are not in, right? Don't we? Who will be welcome to the great banquet? Well, it might depend on how much grace we see in this invitation to come. Just how much grace do we see there? Now, the culture in Jesus' day was kind of a culture of shame. So there was kind of a lot of pressure on those who agreed to come, to come. Because these banquets were actually huge things. This is something that a host might have thrown maybe a, a half dozen times in their lifetime. They would throw these giant banquets and they would invite everybody to come. They've been planning it for years and they want everybody to be there. This is a, a thing of honor, a thing of grace. And then when the people respond and they refuse his invitation and say, I don't want to come to your party, he actually responds with amazing kindness and grace. Even though it kind of frustrates him, it makes him angry, it says. Why aren't these people coming to my party? He decides that his main goal for this party is not contingent on who comes, but just the fact that he wants his house full. This is a worthy occasion that needs to be celebrated. So let's fill the house. So he tells his servants to go out. And he's already spoken a couple times in this passage about those who are lame, who are blind, who are crippled, those who are out. And he's saying, hey, listen, if I just invite you and you can invite me back to your house, then you've, we've repaid each other. Everything's even. That's kind of the cultural expectation. But if I invite someone who could not invite me back, this is a very gracious thing. And I'm saying, I just want you to come to be part of my party, to fill my house. This is about grace, and you're going to get your reward, we're told, in eternity. The language about this second round of invitations that's most striking to me is the language of compelling. Look at verse 23. Then the master told his servants, go out to the roads and the county lanes and compel them to come in. Who has to be forced to go to a party? Why, why would I have to compel you to come? This is supposed to be a good thing. It seems to me that this language about compelling has something to say about the outcasts and they're in disbelief. Really? You, are you kidding me? Maybe it's a big practical joke. You're going to prank me. Yeah, come to my party. And then you get to stand outside the window and listen in. No, he said, compel them to come in. This is for them. And so you have to convince them that this is good news. They think this news is too good to be true. No, it's true. You can come in. You're welcome to the party. You who were once out, you're now in. Come. And so we plead with these people to receive this good news. We plead with these people to understand maybe what we've understood as we receive the good news, that once we did not deserve, once we had not received mercy, once we were out, and now because of the work of Jesus Christ on our behalf, we're in. And you could be in too, so come to the party. And they're starting to realize this great vision that we see throughout Scripture of what this feast looks like. Now I'm looking at this kind of consummation that's described in Revelation chapter 7. Those who are going to be part of the kingdom. Can we start to realize this vision? After this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, 
from every nation and every tribe and every people and every language standing before the throne and before the Lamb. And they were wearing white robes and they were holding palm branches in their hands and they were crying out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. This is the feast from every tribe and every language and every nation and every people standing before the throne praising God. Can we begin to realize the vision that's described in Philippians chapter 2 where we see this vision because... Jesus was obedient to death, even death on the cross. We have this picture that one day he will be exalted to the highest place and given the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We begin to realize in Jesus everyone's in. Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. So it's got me wondering how we live that out as a community. How do we prepare for this great feast that's coming one day? And I've got just a couple quick ideas. The first one is we should celebrate the Lord's Supper every time we get a chance. You know, when we come to the table each month, we use words like this. We say, this table... This meal that we're sharing in at the Lord's table is a pledge or a foretaste of a great feast that we are going to share someday when we sit down at the table with Jesus. We recognize when we come to the Lord's table that we once were out, but that through faith in Jesus Christ, by the blood of Jesus Christ, we are now in. We're at the table. And one day we're going to be sitting at that great feast of banquet table. I think every time we celebrate the Lord's Supper, every opportunity you get to come here and do that, I say we should do that because it reminds us that we're part of that great feast and part of that great banquet. Second thing that might help us prepare for that great feast, what if we would share a meal from time to time with somebody who we think is out? What if we were really intentional about that? Somebody who we sometimes think, I don't know if they're part of the kingdom. What if we sat down at the table with them and had a meal in this world, in this life, now? You know, in Matthew 25, we get another picture of uh, kind of the end of the age and this great vision of people coming before the throne. And there's two groups. There's sheep and there's goats. And the sheep are brought forward and brought to the right hand of Jesus and he says, come in because you saw people who were hungry and you gave them food. You saw me thirsty and you gave me something to drink. You saw me naked and you gave me clothes. You saw me a stranger and you invited me in. You saw me sick and you took care of me. You saw me in prison and you visited me. And the sheep go, when did we ever see you like that? We never saw you like that. And Jesus says, if you did it to the least of these, you did it to me. And the goats are on the left, and he says to them, you know, you saw me. I was hungry. I was thirsty. I was naked. I was alone. I was a stranger. I was sick. I was in prison. You didn't do anything for me. And they said, when did we see you like that? And he said, if you didn't do it to one of the least of these, then you didn't do it to me. 
What if we found an opportunity to simply sit down at a table with someone who was the least of these, maybe people that we think of as being out, and said, come sit at the table with me. And then just see what happens. Because I don't know what would come from that. But it seems to me that something might come, and it might be this vision that blessed is everyone who eats bread in the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we come before you today and I thank you for the truths of uh, these words and God for the challenge that we've had to grow as a slow church and as a people who recognize that we are part of a kingdom that's coming on earth just as it is in heaven and so continue to stir within us how you want us to live that out and we'll give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.